This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and Australia as a modern nation has never made any genuine attempt as a country to come to terms with what was done following European colonisation. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello, and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 120 for Friday, 6th of March, 2020. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host, or, in, as in this case, just by myself, to discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. So, tonight's episode, I have a bunch of audio that I've been grabbing. We've had some various issues in terms of availability of guests and so forth, so it's become time that I should just do an episode where we can discuss these things, even even if it's just by myself. So, obviously, uh, the thing that's confronting Australia overall today is that apparently we're all under threat of uh, dying horribly from a new virus, COVID-19, the coronavirus, and that it's going to be used uh, as a convenient excuse by the government for not meeting the, the few things that it has actually declared that it will do, such as hit a worthless surplus. But also, it's not going to be a driver of any actual change. So the government has come out and said, well, we're definitely not going to do any kind of stimulus program like Rudd and Gillard did in the global financial crisis, which is unfortunate because that worked and we avoided the worst of the global financial crisis, whereas with these mob, these Muppets in charge, uh, we probably won't. So the proposed package, it's not clear yet what it will be, although the IPA is pretty convinced it will be tax cuts because we know how well they stimulated the economy when the uh, Libs and Labor voted for tax cuts back after the 2019 election. Clearly the economy is thriving, as uh, Josh just tells us in, in uh, repeated implausible detail. Clearly the economy is thriving, and that's, of course, why the Reserve Bank has cut the cash rate again. Because that's the sort of thing you do when the economy is thriving and totally fine. Meanwhile, for some reason, despite having this mob of very competent people in charge, Australians seem to be panicking. And for some unfathomable reason, we started with, instead of hoarding... I mean, hoarding is a problematic thing to be doing at the best of times. And the upshot of it is it really hurts, for example, the poor um, who can't afford to stockpile or don't, and don't have places to stockpile uh, and or see uh, rely on those basic goods like pasta, rice, tinned goods, like the things that you kind of need to survive on, particularly if you're trying to survive on the massively below subsistence Centrelink payments, which again, a tangent, Centrelink has declared that people will will need to go and get their certificates in order to avoid their job network demands, which they like to call mutual obligations because that makes it sound like a social safety net isn't a thing that should be provided to people as of right, it's a thing that they should have to earn, and therefore it should be possible to tell people, bad luck, you can starve to death in the gutter. The whole idea of mutual obligation is to make it sound like somebody who's receiving a basic payment to stay alive uh, deserves to be pushed to, through hoops, made to jump through these hoops arbitrarily and have their time wasted and their energy sapped when they're trying to make do on the minimal amount that they, they're uh, allowed to survive. It's just basically punishment for being poor. Anyway, hoarding is bad because it does, it particularly harms those people. But meanwhile, insofar as Australians have hoarded, uh, look, this is a shocking observation. So I hope, hope you're prepared for This is why people, this is why you support, well, why are we saying this is why you're listening to the podcast because we come out with the takes that you don't hear from anywhere else. But guess what? Australians have been hoarding toilet paper and it's silly because you can't eat it. Huh? I mean, what a take. I mean, they, they are now hoarding, if you go to the supermarket now, pasta and rice and, for some reason, flour and tinned tomatoes and other tinned vegetables, they can really see which are the ones that nobody wants to eat because they're the only ones left on the shelves. But yeah, they've gone as well. But for some reason, toilet paper went first. Oh, I think hand sanitizer went really first. But 
for some reason that didn't become the big story. It just became immediately impossible to get any hand sanitizer. And it seems that there's a smaller supply chain for hand sanitizer, which is antibacterial, not antiviral, but the alcohol in it might kill the things that the virus travels in. So it's potentially better than nothing, and particularly if you're on using public transport and public facilities and have to touch things and uh, are, like most of us, terrible at not then touching your face. But, you know, you can't get any, so bad luck. <laughs> Maybe that's the point of the face mask, which we're also out of, which means that people who have the illness aren't putting it over their faces so that when they cough and doctors and so forth don't have sufficient of them because there's a better run on face masks. But they're a lot more effective on the face of somebody who's got it to stop it spreading rather than on the face of uh, somebody who just doesn't want to breathe I mean, distance does a better job. Anyway, amongst the many things that have been stockpiled. But yes, for some reason, Australians decided that, that uh, toilet paper needed to be stockpiled because apparently you can eat it. It's a weird choice. I understand people going in there afterwards and saying, well, I'm not hoarding it, but I only had a couple of rolls left and I do actually need to get more toilet paper, so I'd better get some now because next week there won't be any at all. So I understand that response. But the people who you've seen in photographs with... You know, trolleys full of toilet paper stacked high. Those people are public enemies and should be booed. They shouldn't be able to push that through the supermarket without other people going, boo, boo, you're a disgrace. Anyway, it should, there should be a social cost to being a completely selfish idiot git. But apparently there isn't. Like, I, I, in none of that footage have I seen people booing the people doing that. But anyway, so toilet paper, which leads us to this bit of footage where Channel 7 went to, not, you know, not, not a you know, tinned veggies factory or a pasta uh, manufacturer or a, a rice. I mean, rice is its own problem, but uh, no, no not, not the manufacturers of basic foods that people might need in some kind of a crisis. No, no, because of the toilet paper thing, we had all the news crews going to toilet paper manufacturers, including this one, which is a little play. Look, you may have thought that over some of the firefighters were the heroic ones, but... Uh, Mate, how's work been since they uh, started, uh, the public started stockpiling a few of them? Oh, it's flat out, it's flat out, but uh, you know, we'll do anything for Australia these times, call for desperate measures, so we're, we're working around the clock and that's just how it is. Excellent, so uh, work going well? Oh, it's going well, um, business as usual, uh, it's not easy in there, but we, we rock up every day and we do our thing, so yeah, we'll just keep doing what we got to do. No, work's going really well, um, production's on plan and we're, we're making as much toilet paper as possible, pretty so much. Production increase in the last week or two? Not specifically. Um, we do have orders to fill and we're doing our best to fill them. Fantastic. How are things going? How's morale at work? All good? Yeah, morale's fine. Um, another day at the office and just making more paper. We'll do anything for Australia. Yep, yep. Well, you you keep manufacturing that toilet paper. Uh, meanwhile, you did see that uh, there was a, a spike in uh, inquiries for uh, people manufacturing B-Days. So anyway, that's where we are. Uh, so we have a government that isn't going to do anything to keep the economy running. We have uh, a supply chain system that we can now see the cracks in. We have people responding to the potential spread of a, a virus by making sure that they're in close proximity to each other. And people going to Costco, <laughs> stocking up on toilet rolls whilst also eating from the shed like sample food thing. Like, look, it's well thought through. And also it's been an opportunity for some casual racism. So when Italy was hit slightly before we were, we had this tweet from The Age. Italy's coronavirus red zone springs a leak. In a very Italian way, the man-made dam wall designed to hold back the virus from spilling over into Europe is already cracking. In a very Italian way? In a what? What exactly are you saying there? Did anybody review that before it went out? Did anybody look at it and go, hmm, in a very Italian way? That That's, uh... That seems a little racist. Maybe we can drop that line. That nah, got published. Anyway, it's time for the No More Bullshit Corner, where we call bullshit on the ridiculous things that people have been claiming this week, uh, mainly the people in power, uh, including there was a regional grants program, that's one of the ones that we were talking about, that came up under the Bridget McKenzie thing, in which uh, funding was supposed to go to regional and rural facilities. And I think $10 million out of the $150 million for that went to the North Sydney Pool. Now... I'm not a Sydney person, but I'm familiar with what's on the other side of the Harbour Bridge. So you've got one side of the Harbour Bridge that's got the city and the you know, opera house and, and circular key. And then you go across the bridge and then on the left down the bottom, it can be hilarious if I'm, getting, if I'm getting this wrong. But anyway, I think that's where Luna Park is. And there's a pool, a pool that's like right in the shadow of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. 
It's basically as close to the centre of Sydney as you could possibly get. Anyway, it got money under this program for regional pools. And here is the Mayor of the North Sydney Council defending the idea that North Sydney is in fact regional. She doesn't see a problem with her council receiving $10 million from a program that was supposed to benefit regional and remote communities. It's definitely a regional facility. We have people from all over the state coming to use our pool. It has a history of being a regional pool. Also, it's a, a, a tourist attraction. Yeah, no. No, that is definitely not what the word regional is being used to mean. That is the most ludicrous defence. Basically, it is not you saying, yeah, fair cop. Yeah, no, that, that's... Uh, you know what, I'm not going to do this interview. Uh, no, not talking. No, this is clearly indefensible. I'm not going to attach my face and my name and I'm not going to have anything to do with this. Uh, I'm, I'm off. Bye. <laughs> have some shame when you're caught out with a rot like that. Don't try and pretend that regional means like in the shadow of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That definition that, what, if, if people come from rural Australia or tourists come and use it, therefore it's regional, that could mean anything. Anything's regional under that definition. Look, it is. To be fair, technically everything is regional according to a broad definition of the word regional. Is it a region or is it a is it the nothing from the never-ending story? Is it a place outside of space and time or is it a region on the surface of the earth? Well, then, then it's eligible for funding under this program. But you'd better actually be a place that can be located in space. Okay? Otherwise, you're outside the, the ambit of this program. It's ridiculous. The idea that the, the department now needs to define what regional is so that <laughs> shameless rotting like this. I mean, it's, there's still been plenty of shameless rotting in the regional areas through these programs by the government, by the Liberal. Let me be clear. I'm not going to, you know, it's not the, the idea of government in general. It's not people in government in general. It's the specific actions of the Liberal National Party and, they, and, and a reason why they should not be in government. But yes, spectacularly shameless. Keep that audio. Next time somebody's talking about how they represent regional Australia, ask if they mean five metres from the bridge or 100 metres from the bridge. How far from the Sydney Harbour Bridge are they talking about in that context? Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is apparently sufficiently removed from his own department that he can't take responsibility for things that are done within it. Here is Christian Porter defending Scott Morrison from being asked a question about something that his department has done and responsive that we can't ask him anything. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is again to the Prime Minister. Why did his office receive copies of the multiple versions of the colour-coded spreadsheet for the Corrupt Sports Rorts program? Why did Mr Gagent rely on just one version of these spreadsheets when the Auditor-General told the Senate there were dozens? Did Mr Gagent ignore the other versions of the spreadsheet, or wasn't he ever given them? The Prime Minister has the call. The Leader of the House. <laughs> Members on my left. <laughs> the Leader of the House has the call. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Well, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is obviously responsible for portfolio matters within um, the Prime Ministerial role. But no, he's not hang on, hang on. Members on my left will cease interjecting. Okay, the member for Spence. I'm actually going to hear the entire point of order. The more you interject, the longer it takes. But I'm telling you, I'm going to listen to the point of order. The Leader of the House has the call. But, but he, he can't be responsible for individual email traffic of members of his department, nor would he be expected to know about those things. Just the manager, manager of opposition business on the point of order. Member for Chifley's warned. The manager of opposition business. Uh, thanks, Speaker. Uh, if what the Leader of the House has put forward is true, then it means you can't ask the Prime Minister about an inquiry that he instigated that was run by the head of his own department, the department called Prime Minister in Cabinet, and you can't then ask about whether documents were provided to that person by the Prime Minister who set it up and it was being run by the head of his own department. Mm. If, if this is not in order, I'm not sure what's left. 
is responsible for his department, but not for individual emails sent from people within his department. I mean, yeah, he is responsible. That's that's what being the head of a department means. And the idea that when you catch... The, it's not like this was a rogue person from his department who was randomly doing stuff that wasn't entirely consistent with Scott Morrison's political interests. The idea that... Uh, it was just, just a rogue. There's just a rogue element out there. Said he emails to a government minister uh, from this department, but I mean, Scott, have you sacked this person who was acting on an uh, you know unauthorized? You clearly, you hadn't authorized that through through delegation of, of instructions. You it's com- completely rogue. Nobody in the prime minister's department is acting without instructions from above. Nobody's off there doing whatever they like. They're there defending the interests of Scott Morrison. It's the classic thing from the old John Howard days of, you know, the buck stops somewhere else. Just amazing. Simultaneously, also in Parliament, you might remember from last week where we had the government arguing in the RoboDebt case that it doesn't have a duty of care, doesn't owe a duty of care to the people who are the recipients of the social safety net. It doesn't It doesn't owe a duty of care to citizens uh, when it is acting in relation to them. Now, that is deranged but bill shorten did try to ask specifically what the government's position in relation to that was uh there's two questions on on the day that i grabbed this and you'll notice that the government doesn't answer the question at first and each time that scott morrison doesn't actually answer the question he defers it to uh the relevant minister and at the end the minister's just like which i think is stuart roberts at the end the minister's just like oh it's before the courts yeah but the basic question of do you owe a duty of care to people who are receiving social security payments or not. The idea that, that they can't answer that clearly and they have to fudge it uh, and that they really talk about, and I'll, I'll play both, there are two clips here, and I'll play both of them, but you'll see that Scummo specifically says that the main duty that he owes is to taxpayers, as if they're the people directly affected by the policies of the government in relation to social security as if they're the primary focus and they should be the primary focus. Because if that's your primary focus, then you've got no social safety net because it's always in the financial interests of taxpayers uh, in their taxpayer role and not people in the community who may at some point need to rely on the social safety net because the whole point of social safety net is it's there for all of us if we need it. But um, And obviously people who are taxpayers are also at risk of needing it at some point. But if you're just looking at them from, from the role of taxpayers, then obviously their, their interest is to destroy it to run it into the ground, to let people starve on it because their only interest is that they don't have to pay as much tax to fund it. But and if that's your, if that's the basis on which you approach social security policy, then that's very bad news for even taxpayers, actually, because even taxpayers need there to be a social safety net. But so here's Bill Shorten's first question, the dodgy non-answer from Stuart Robert, and then the second bit of audio will be he he's back from Scott Morrison. Oh, and just before I start it, the first thing that Roberts comes back with is the obscene, hey, don't you tell us about the duty of care when you're responsible for debts at sea. And that is the most shameless attack. You will note that the LNP, and everybody listening to this podcast is well aware of this, don't actually keep track of what happens to the people that they drag back to sea. They don't care about when boats sink and so forth elsewhere in the ocean. And talking of having no duty of care, do they follow up what happens to the people who they deport back to the countries from which they fled on boats? No, they don't. Those people are often killed and often the reason why they fled often comes true. We, we deport people back and they die. And we saw that when they did, I think it was the second season of that SBS program, whose name I've totally forgotten, the one about um, go back to where you came from or whatever they, they called it, and where they sent them back and they found that a bunch of the people that Peter, I think Peter Reith was on that one, and they sent them back to a bunch of countries where Peter Reith had in fact sent them uh, and found that they had been killed subsequently. Now, can Stuart Robert stand up in Parliament and state that uh, none of the people that Australia has deported have been killed following their being sent back to the countries they'd fled from? No, he can't. Does he know what the numbers are of people who've been killed when they were sent back? No, he doesn't. Because the government very specifically refuses to keep that data or find out about that data. Does he know how many people have died after their boats were turned around and uh, pushed back out to sea? No, he doesn't. Because he doesn't care. Because the government, again, doesn't think it owes a duty of care to those people either. So for it to use those people as a, as a cudgel to attack people asking questions about it now in relation to its mistreatment of another group of people being people on Centrelink, it just should outrage you. Outrages me. Anyway, here's Shorten asking the government the first time. 
Questions without notice. The member for Maribyrnong. Uh, my questions to the Prime Minister. Government lawyers have told the federal court that the government does not owe Centrelink recipients a duty of care. Is this the government's position? The Minister for Human Services, members on my left, let me the thank has the, the member for his question. And let me say categorically, we will not be lectured on duty of care by those opposite who presided over 1,200 deaths at sea, and those opposite the minister, have the hypocrisy. The minister will resume his seats. The minister will resume his seats. Members on my left, say to the manager of opposition business, I was about to intervene, so whether it's on a, a, a different point, I just say to the minister it was a very specific question and uh, he needs to address the policy topic of the question. On a point of order, the um, manager of opposition business. Uh, I was also going to raise the language of the minister went well beyond what's normally acceptable in this chamber, and it would certainly assist the House if he withdrew. I didn't hear everything the minister said because the interjections were so loud. But I'll just say to the minister, well, it's actually sort of not helping if you know you're expecting me to deal with the point of order and the interjections continue. So I'm just making the point. I didn't hear everything the minister said. The minister has withdrawn. The minister has the call. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. There is no doubt Australia supports a generous social welfare system as part of our social safety net. And the government's primary service delivery arm, Services Australia, always aspires to provide a supportive customer experience. And the Australian community expects Members on my the left. agency to be responsible stewards of taxpayer funds and ensure people are only paid what they're entitled the member to. Member for Maribyrnong has the call. The minister will resume his seat for a second. The member for Maribyrnong. Just on direct relevance, my question no, I've, I've was got the a question. duty of the care. member for Maribyrnong can resume his seat. I've got the question. It was, as I said, a very specific question. And I'm just saying to the minister, he's allowed a brief introduction. He's been doing that uh, for. Not, not many seconds at all, actually, given, given the way the answer started. Uh, so, but he will need to bring himself to the, to the specific question or, um, or wind up his answer. Thank Minister you, Mr Speaker. As the member's question goes to technical legal matters that are currently before the court, it would be inappropriate to comment further when the matter is under active judicial review. Yeah, he didn't start with that. He just finished off with the it's before the court when it became apparent that his previous bullshit uh, wasn't answering the question. So that's your answer. You don't get to find out because it's before a court. That said, that means you can't ask any questions about RoboDead at all. You can't ask any questions because as soon as... It, does that mean that the parliamentary system in the mindset of the LNP, basically there is no ministerial responsibility because as soon as something is before a court, you can't be asked questions about it. And obviously, when they do something incompetent, then then it's likely to end up before a court. And if it's not before a court, then they'll be like, see, where's the evidence that something, something wrong has happened? Well, you know, when there is evidence, then it ends up before a court. And then the government's like, oh, well, we can't answer questions on it. It's pretty shapeless. And the defence there that they have to uh, make sure that people aren't paid more than they're entitled to, that is not a defence of robo-debt, which was clearly the government just making taking wild stabs and trying to drag money back from people where it wasn't owed. And it had no basis for thinking that it was owed because the data sets it was matching or purporting to match were completely incompatible. Annual tax returns uh, do not mean that that, per that that income was earned equally over the intervening months or the intervening fortnights. So you can't compare it with fortnightly settling the documents like those data sets were obviously incompatible you were obviously just harassing people to try and squeeze out what you can because once again your your entire uh, economic policy is that uh, the only way that you know that will squeeze back some kind of budget surplus not by raising more revenue not by stopping squandering money on the private health system or, or private schools or, or submarines that don't work no it's that we'll squeeze it out of the very poor while simultaneously giving tax cuts to the rich so we'll cut revenue, and how will we make up the shortfall? Well, we will harass the very poor with debts that 
they don't owe, but we might be able to bully them into paying, which was what happened. Anyway, short and tried again. My question is to the Prime Minister. The government's Social Security Law Guide, which was released on the 10th of February this year, states Australian government employees have a duty of care to the public when performing their duties. But government lawyers on February the 14th this year stated their policy in the robo-debt class action was the government does not owe Centrelink recipients a duty of care. Prime Minister, does the government owe a duty of care or not to Centrelink recipients? The Prime Minister has a call. I'll tell you the duty of care we have to the Australian people, including those who depend on their social services payments, which enables them to deal with the great difficulties in their lives, and particularly at a time like this. At a time like this, when the country is facing some very difficult challenges, and I refer specifically to the impacts of the bushfires and the coronavirus, which means more and more Australians because of the automatic stabilisers of social security payments, which go to those who have been impacted by the economic shocks that we're now experiencing. What they deserve from a government is to be able to pay their bills and to ensure that we can make the payments that we can make to them, as we have, Mr Speaker, and we ensure we do that. One of the ways, Mr Speaker, as a government, we've been able to ensure that people can rely on the services and the essentials that the government delivers, whether it's their Centrelink payments or whether it's other support payments, their aged care payments, is because you need to know how to manage money. And that means when you're making payments to those who deserve them, Mr Speaker, you pay them what they're entitled to. You need to be able to manage money? Oh, is that what the Indu card's supposed to be about? It's right. I, I hadn't realised that part of the way the Indu card worked was that people who were then receiving a Centrelink payment were being encouraged to quote manage money by shaking down other people for cash that they weren't owed. Is that the social security system now? And the government is showing, leading by example, and saying this is how you manage money. You find a group of vulnerable people, more vulnerable than you, and you kick them very hard in the hope that some money will fall out. And therefore, that's our new policy for people who receive social security. They need to find people even worse off than they are somehow, and, and squeeze them down, because that's what managing money means. Yeah, shameless crook. Meanwhile, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was in Australia this week, and she had a, a conference out in Sydney with the bridge behind them, of, uh, with her and, and Morrison, and she made a speech in which she raised the point of the people that uh, Australia deports to New Zealand, whether they're New Zealand citizens or not, actually, if they're eligible for New Zealand citizenship, when they've committed a crime. Uh, including minor crimes. The Peter Dutton always likes to say that he's just deporting violent criminals, but that is demonstrably untrue. He deports anyone he can possibly deport because the people who are buying that line, who like the idea of deporting people who commit crimes, which being a, a ridiculous approach in the first place, but their main thing is they just want people deported. <laughs> they just want fewer foreigners here. So the bigger the number of people that he's deporting, the happier those people are. So off they go. There's no compassion. There's no sense to, to it. There's, you know, no, not just, even when they are New Zealand citizens, we will deport people who've been in Australia their entire lives. So they may technically have had New Zealand citizenship birth, but that doesn't mean they've ever lived in New Zealand or have any connections with New Zealand. Their family was here their whole lives. They've lived in Australia. Australia raised them and they commit a crime and Australia goes, ah, oh, what's this we find? Oh, we can deport you to New Zealand. Off you go. So that's the issue that Ardern is talking about. And by the way, it's in the context where, and I'll point out, it's fairly hypocritical given the types of Australians that we've sent to New Zealand, being, you know, for example, far-right lunatics uh, who are mates with the right-wing uh, underground nutbags in Melbourne uh, who go across New Zealand and then massacre uh, a, a mosque full of uh, Muslim people. Yeah, you know, New Zealand's copped, copped some uh, pretty unpleasant Australians. But meanwhile, we're, we're just deporting uh, anyone we can from New Zealand. Ardern had had enough, and this is what she said to Morrison. Now, you can't see Morrison's face when she's saying this, but uh, if you want to look up the footage and you can see this sort of gormless smirk on his face, it's... Look, he doesn't look like a man who is... Uh, on top of his game, has any kind of sensible point to make, but is just uh, able to l listen to criticism with uh, smug indifference because he knows that he's the more powerful person in the relationship and uh, doesn't have to care. The New Zealand and Australia relationship is being tested. Now, not every Kiwi migrant will be perfect, but evidence shows that the vast majority are providing a net benefit to Australia. They earn more, they are more likely to be employed and they pay more tax than their Aussie-born counterparts. They are Australia's best migrants. But rather than them being given security to keep contributing, and to, in return their rights are being eroded. 
Simple rights, like assistance from the National Disability Insurance Scheme, even though they pay into the scheme's levy. Separate again is the issue of deportations. Australia is well within its rights to deport individuals who break your laws. New Zealand does the same. But we have a simple request. Send back Kiwis, genuine Kiwis. Do not deport your people and your problems. Yeah, Scammy did a terrible job of responding to that, but his mates uh, Sky After Dark have had all of their people on there having a, having a real go at Ardern about how embarrassing that was for her and how pathetic it was to be attacking Australia whilst in Australia. I mean, how ungrateful. How ungracious. And that if you want to make a genuine change to policy, you've got to do it behind closed doors. You don't do it out publicly. I don't know. I feel like that was a fairly effective message that uh, really... Uh, highlighted the issue, and we saw a lot more of it than we would if it was, there were discussions behind closed doors that the Australian government could completely ignore. Same reason to me. I don't think that the person who should be embarrassed at the result of that is Jacinda Ardern. Anyway, talking of people who should be embarrassed, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, uh, having a go at the ALP shadow treasurer in a way that was weird and fairly racist and bigoted against Hindus, and we'll I'll play it in just a sec, but the idea was that, that Labor was proposing to focus the budget on the issue of well-being. Now, the idea of caring about people's well-being is apparently a thing that conservative politicians think is hilarious. That's not what budgets are for. Budgets are for rich people gouging as much as they can, and it's for us to uh, reward our mates and feather our own nests and you know, reward industries that, that are profitable for us, that, that, that uh, are connected with our party. And you know, budgets are not, and, and you know, to try and win political power. But the idea that a budget should care about people, that it should be focused on the well-being of citizens, <laughs> tree hugging hippie. Ha! So here is Josh Frydenberg, who finds not only the idea of well-being hilarious, but also religious practices that are different from his own. They are inspired. They are inspired by their spiritual leader. That. And I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking yesterday as the member for Rankin was coming into the chamber fresh from his ashram deep in the, uh, deep in the mountains of the Himalayas, barefoot into the chamber, but robes flowing, incense burning, beads in one hand, well-being budget in the other, I thought to myself, what would the yoga position that the member for Rankin would assume? The Treasurer will resume his seat. Well, as the member for Rankin was approaching the dispatch box, I was thinking what position would he be assuming to deliver the first wellbeing budget? And I'm no expert. Oh. <laughs> what position would he be assuming at the dispatch box? Was it position number five, the downward dog, Mr Speaker? No, was it position number six, the reclining pigeon, Mr Speaker? No, 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 no. Position number seven, Mr Speaker, the twisted deer, Mr Speaker. But then the vision came to me. Then the vision came to me through the incense, Mr Speaker. What was the position number eight? It was the sleeping no, swan, No, the treasurer, will, the treasurer will remove that crop. It was the sleeping swan, Mr Speaker. Position number eight, the sleeping swan, beads in one hand, robes flowing, incense burning. Here was the member for Rankin's homily to his mentor, the former member for Lily. Mr Speaker, we all know, the Australian people know, a well-being budget is just another word for Labor's higher taxes and more debt. The standard in Parliament for comedy is extremely low. Um, Frydenberg's getting great guffaws from his side for this witless rant. Trying to smear an opponent by the insinuation that having uh, a different religious belief is somehow weird and stupid and should be laughed at. That's so weird. Anyway, the, the Hindu organisations in Australia have asked for an apology and Frydenberg hasn't given one. It was just it was just so revealing of the entire approach of people like Frydenberg and the, the sort of stuff that they, in their own communities, and I'm not talking about 
um, his his own religious community. I'm talking about the community of people who are from the very leafy suburbs of Melbourne uh, and their very snooty closed clubs and the kind of racist, bigoted nonsense that gets spoken behind closed doors in those places. So, I mean, amongst the rich and privileged and people within the far-right community, the contempt they have for people. They, well, they just find other people. The, the, what's the whole idea of Orientalism? The idea that people who are different are are strange and, uh, you know, at best you honour them by respecting their weird ways. But also if you want to joke about them, you know, that's understandable because they're strange. So strange. It was weird. And I remind you, this is what's being said in Parliament. This is being uh, shouted from the dispatch box. This is the treasurer of the country just having this weird out of nowhere attack on, well... He's not intending to attack on Hindu people. That's just it. Just goes without saying in his mind that Hindu people are not worthy of respect, or you, or this entire line. You wouldn't if you respected Hindu people, you wouldn't have run this. Like you can't. Okay, imagine that you are Josh Frydenberg and your mate is a Hindu person, and you've been along to some religious celebrations from them, and you respect them and you respect their community, and you know you you, you view the people who are following that religion as being sensible, reasonable people. Now, if that's you. Can you imagine saying what Frydenberg said in that when he's trying to attack Labor? Like, his aim is to attack Labor, but clearly he can't respect Hindu people or he wouldn't have said that. So the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras took place uh, Tuesday before this one, and you'll have seen probably footage of the Liberal Party trying to run a float, celebrating the endeavour of all things because, yeah, we're bit against gay people, but why not, why not be deliberately provocative towards Indigenous people at the same time? But anyway, they ran a float and there were protesters against it. Presumably because the LNP have done everything in their power recently to try and harm LGBTI people. And are specifically pushing for a religious discrimination bill, which gives people who hate LGBTI people more power to discriminate against them. And of course, that is exactly the point of the bill. And we've previously heard audio from people like Erica Betts confirming that it is in fact payback for the people who hate LGBTI people in response to LGBTI people having the marriage equality. Not equality in every other area. We've already talked about uh, other areas in which LGBTI people are still discriminated against. For example, they can still be sacked for being uh, gay. So they don't have full equality yet. But even so, the LNP is out there pushing for a bill to uh, make it even harder for them to uh, survive in the community. Uh, So yeah, I can see why LGBTI people might be like, yeah, no. And I just take my word for it. Here is Nick McKim in the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Legislation Committee asking the head of the Human Rights Commission about the effect of the proposed legislation. So could this legislation therefore be said to permit, um, at least potentially, harm to be caused to women that is currently unlawful? That is correct. And could this legislation potentially permit harm to be caused to LGBTIQ people that is currently unlawful? That is correct. And could this legislation potentially permit harm to be caused to people with disabilities that is currently unlawful? Yes, we've outlined um, examples from our work um, that uh, tries to illustrate how that could occur. Thank you. So you can see why LGBTI people might be a little bit uh, unimpressed by the Libs trying to push a float through Mardi Gras. These are not people who are friends of LGBTI people. And by the way, uh, you also note there's also footage of Albanese uh, and some other Labor frontbenchers walking through the crowd and also being booed. And it looks like Albo puts up his middle finger at the people who are criticising him. Again, on the subject of this uh, religious discrimination bill where the ALP has done a complete cop-out and not stood up against it. They may vote against it later, but they aren't doing anything to fight against it now. There is plenty, as you will see from all the submissions, if you go and look at the submissions into the Religious Discrimination Bill, the second draft of it, there is plenty there to show that this is not a bill that has any merit at all and that it is designed to be harmful to LGBTI people. That is the entire purpose of it. And yet the ALP can't stand up and say no. Anyway, so there were some protesters. They were ejected by the New South Wales Police. And it's almost like the New South Wales Police are unaware of the history of Mardi Gras. In fact, what it's commemorating being the harassment and bullying of LGBTI protesters by New South Wales Police back in the 1970s. Uh, apparently, New South Wales Police missed, missed the point of that. So as they removed people for protesting in favour of LGBTI rights, they tweeted this. 
Earlier tonight, three people were removed from the Mardi Gras parade following unauthorised entry. New South Wales police are disappointed with their actions, which did not comply with the conditions of the event or the spirit of the celebrations. Nah, mate. (laughs) Protesting against homophobic assholes is very much in the spirit of the celebrations. (laughs) New South Wales police lecturing LGBTI people on what's the spirit of the Mardi Gras is just... That's like a slightly disgusted chef's kiss. I think we should finish this week with a special Shameless Morons Corner. Now, unfortunately, I don't have audio of the most recent Shameless Moron, which is Bronwyn Bishop talking to Sky After Dark in relation to the coronavirus. Bishop told Paul Murray that she believes that coronavirus is a Chinese biological weapon to, quote, get rid of non-productive Chinese, end quote, uh, to export the virus to the US and send the world economy into recession. Now, that's the kind of crazy which... uh, (sighs) Maybe it's a good thing that I couldn't find any audio for it because it would have been infuriating having to listen to directly. But it's not the only craze that we've heard this week. So let's let's do a couple of them. So first of all, we've got Peter Dutton declaring that Islamist terrorism is left-wing. Yes, that's right. Religious fundamentalists who hate gay people and want a theocratic state. I mean, nothing says theocracy more than lefty hippies. But anyway, left-wing, according to Dutton. I'm not making that up. You've been criticised today for referring to left-wing extremism as well as right-wing extremism. Now, Mike Burgess mentioned right-wing extremism, I think, about six times in this speech on threats to Australia. Uh, Jenny McAllister raised, where did you get your advice on using left-wing extremism, given he didn't mention it? Where did you get that advice? Well, Patricia, look, you can use Islamic extremist. uh, You get in trouble for using that. Uh, You can use left-wing to describe everybody from the left to the right, you know, left-wing, right-wing. I said today I don't care where people are on the spectrum. If they pose a threat to our country, if they want to do harm to Australians, then they're in our sight. And I'm just completely blind to where people are on the spectrum, which is why I just find it such a semantic uh, and nonsense debate that uh, if people are involved in a right-wing organisation, they're planning an attack, uh, they're acting outside of the law, they will be treated no differently uh, than somebody who is an Islamic extremist that's planning an attack in the same way. And that's been the approach that I've always taken. I just think it's such a juvenile distraction. The Director-General of ASIO pointed out, and not, not just this Director-General either, Duncan Lewis before him, the fact that ASIO has been concentrating on right-wing extremist lunatic groups and individuals for literally decades. And I just don't understand why we get bogged down in this language. The, 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 the bigger issue here is the threat that we face and what we're doing about it. And that was the subject of Mr Burgess's speech last night. OK, so when you refer to left-wing terrorism, do you mean these Islamist groups? Yes, I do. And, uh, and anybody in between. I, as I say, I don't care whether they're neo-Nazis or they're part of some cell uh, that's been involved in a fight in the Middle East or uh, trying to recruit people onshore or fundraise onshore. Uh, these are all people that ASIO have an interest in. And our old friend, Feveranti Wells, she's objecting to the head of ASIO announcing that right-wing extremism is a real security threat and the idea that security agencies could dare be critical of her side of politics is an outrage to Feveranti. So here she is demanding that he accept that conservatives are not like these right-wing extremists who are really left-wing extremists. Not that it matters, but they're definitely left-wing extremists. I believe that the right-wingers prefer to be called snowflakes because they apparently... That's their terminology, isn't it? Senator Fear of Anti-Wells. Thank you, um, uh, Director-General. I'm not sure if you saw some of the comments that I've made recently directly on this point. Yes, I see you nodding. Thank you. Uh, I am concerned about this and concerned about um, the use of terminology of right... Uh, Right is associated with conservatism in this country and there are many people of conservative uh, background who take exception to being um, charred uh, with the brush and I think that you do understand that your comments, particularly when you refer to them solely as right wing, has the potential to offend a lot of Australians. I certainly understand your point, Senator, and I I totally totally get it Um, and my intention was not to... uh, offend any uh, innocent people in that regards and as I said before it's unfortunate that um, we refer to it as right-wing extremism but in the absence of something else which 
um, maybe we should look at a different label? Well, I think if one reads the history of ASIO volumes one, two and three, I think that that's very, very evident and I'm sure that you've read your history quite correctly, Director-General. My point is that both fascism and socialism have their antecedents in communism. Yeah. Communism. And I think that it's important for those distinctions to be made. And I think that Minister Dutton's comments, if I can put it up, mopping up after this was very clear. And that is that uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what spectrum they're, not, they're on. If it's extremism, it's extremism. And I think you, that you would equally agree that there have been instances in this country where there have been so-called right-wing extremists protesting with flags that denominate, whether it's the BLF flag or other flags, have indicated that their politics, politics are not necessarily right-wing, they were actually left-wing. So I think the time has come, Director-General, especially from you, to ensure that the terminology that you use is very careful uh, and so that ordinary Australians, particularly those of conservative background, are not offended. Happy with that, Senator. Totally Before agree. I... And that weirdness uh, is actually just after this weirdness from uh, One Nation Lunatic, former One Nation Lunatic, Malcolm Roberts, declaring that actually the Nazis were left-wing. They've got socialist in the name. Breaking news, countries that call themselves democratic republics are definitely all democratic. And yes, the thing that we most objected to in the Nazis, the thing that made the world go to war with them was some of their public services. It was really the public services that were really the problem. It wasn't the nationalism and the militarism and the homicidal racism. It was the lefty bits. Hitler was a vegetarian, you know, therefore vegetarians. That was, that's, that was the problem. It was vegetarianism. You know, not, the, not, the, not all the right-wing shit that caused an actual war. Anyway, I'm not kidding. This is actually argued by a senator in Senate Estimates. It's embarrassing, but here it is. Left and right. I'm, I'm trying to, to put the question properly to you, Mr Burgess. The terms left and right would seem to be ones that confuse, maybe even designed to confuse. I'm not accusing you of, of using those terms for that intent. They've been generally accepted across the community. But to me, you know, Hitler was raised as someone from the right, when, it, when he was a socialist. So, in fact, most of the, the dictators, most of the mass murderers of, of the last century were actually socialists or communists. Um, so the left and right gets fuzzy. And finally, we've got the LNP Senator, Jared Rennick, and we've got two bits of audio from him. So back in November, he was declaring that the Bureau of Meteorology was part of a conspiracy to fudge the weather records in order to boost the conspiracy of climate change. And... He's asked about it, and, and his response is... This, again, a Liberal senator, an LNP senator, is saying this stuff. You have previously said that the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, you've accused it of rewriting weather records to fit in with the global warming That's right. agenda. Yep. What's the proof of that? Uh, the proof of that is basically that they uh, basically adapted a new weather measuring instrument, and they didn't run a parallel run at the time. So if you're going to adapt a new measuring instrument, which they did in the late 90s, they should have run a parallel run with the old measuring instrument so that you knew what the difference between the old instrument and the new instrument was. They've released some pretty detailed papers on homogenisation of records, yep. for example, that if you took that out, actually, it would look as though global warming was worse than it was. Yep. So okay, well, look, I've worked in finance for 25 years mm. and I've never known a CFO to walk into a company and rewrite the financial statements from 100 years ago. Okay, so why you would go back 50 or 60 years and rewrite records that, you know, you've got no idea of how they were measured, the standardisation or anything, mm -hmm. and then change that, you've got to have proof. And, and the way that you do re regression analysis is that you've got to have a large number of observations to do this. But the, the reason why they say yeah. they've been doing it is because there were issues with some measuring stations. Yeah, In absolutely. some circumstances there was a complete change around the environment, so it gave different readings. It's pretty detailed stuff. Uh, what are you accusing them of exactly? I'm accusing them of not following proper process for recording statistical data. Mm. But yeah. you, you had the word agenda when you mentioned this. So are you saying there are people in there deliberately altering data within the Bureau of Meteorology? I'm saying that we should have a more rigorous testing of the Bureau of Meteorology in the way they change data, absolutely. But the agenda part, as in they want more people to sort of take global warming seriously, so they're deliberately fiddling data to put uh, a serious accusation. 
yeah, it is a serious accusation, and I stand by. I don't believe that the record, the change in records, and mm. the way they've gone about it. And I've got a system, I've got a background in system accounting where I've mm. changed records, and we've always done a parallel run. And then this week, uh, to highlight the kind of idiot Jared is, we had him trying to lecture the head of the CSIRO on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and his conclusion that therefore you can't make any predictions about the weather because it's just too complex a system and therefore we shouldn't do anything about it at all. So here is Gerard trying to sound smart. Now, I'm going to play this audio. I don't want anybody who is susceptible to hearing faux science that is wrong and then just believing it. And whilst the CSIRO head at the end comes back and says, no, that's why this doesn't, that doesn't apply here, he's also wrong about a bunch of the other claims he makes, even including the details about Heisenberg himself. But that's not the point. The point is, this is, well, to quote Tony Martin, who was pointing this out, this, you know, everybody, everybody's had that, that moment where they tra- sort of tried to spout off on something that they sort of barely understood, uh, but rarely, rarely in the situation where the head of the CSIRO could immediately correct them. Um, and are you familiar with uh, Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Basically, you can either know... That I'm a physicist and I'm familiar with the uncertainty principle. Yeah. That's right. So he, he got, uh, was it Nobel Prize in 1927 for... I think it was actually the, um, coming up with the statistic probabilities of the wave function. Um, but basically, you know, we're taught this in grade 12 physics, that you can either know the momentum or the position of a subatomic particle, but you can't know both. Um, and as a result, that's led to the, the introduction of quantum physics... Um, which, ironically enough, Einstein could never reconcile with classical physics, hence his letter to Max Born when he says God doesn't play dice. Um, but my, my point is is that given that infrared radiation has a lower um, frequency and hence power, you know, power than visible light, it's very difficult to understand the properties of infrared radiation if you want to base it on Heisenberg's uncertainty problem. Principle, is it not? So, Senator, the uncertainty principle applies at the quantum level? Yeah, that's um, right. If we move into the um, classical level, the macro world that yep. we all live in, um, it, it, it's not really relevant to those... Un- those uncertainties are so tiny, they're irrelevant to the world that we live in. So if you're talking about you know, uncertainty and radiation or absorption, those yep. things are all macro effects that you can easily quantify and measure. So as the country faces a new virus, as the economy suffers major shocks as a result of the panic about that virus... It's good to know that the people in charge are competent individuals. We've got our best brains, our best minds on the job. And I feel that if you were at the beginning of this episode thinking, oh God, if all the toilet paper's gone, I'd better go out and do some hoarding myself. I'd better do some panic buying. I hope that hearing more from the people in charge throughout the podcast has helped reassure you that there's nothing to worry about and everything's going to be fine. The mission of this podcast is to try and find what we can do about what's happening to our country. And it's just reassuring to know that this week, in relation to these issues, we don't even need to. There's nothing to worry about. So, having finally been able to end the podcast on a positive note, that is, I think, where we will leave it. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers for keeping the podcast running. Thank you to everybody who has come back to have another listen. And thank you very much to Robin Gray for the music and Alex Lum for the artwork. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Bye.